With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever in the world you are. Um, you know, as, as we continue the, this series, I think we're at about 50 episodes that we've recorded so far. Um, we're getting a lot of really dynamic, uh, you know, guests to come on here. And today is, I think, one of easily the most recognizable names in, in Web3 blockchain technology. Um, and, and we've got uh, Dimitri Bucherin here with us today. And I, I have so many questions related, not just to the technology, but also just kind of the the... Um, nurturing of, of a thought leader in, in this world um, from a father's perspective. So there's there's so many things we're going to get into. And and again, um, you know, Goss is back in uh, Switzerland. So he's he's uh, taking a break from the Crypto Hobo uh, Roadshow. Um, so we're thrilled to have you back, sir. Let's go ahead and, and jump right over. Uh, Dimitri, let, let's kind of start with a little bit of the background. Um how early did you even start seeing, you know, cryptocurrency, you know, kind of Bitcoin and, and starting to think that this was something cool? Because your background is uh, a little bit of fintech, correct? Uh, yeah, you can say that. I mean, uh, I grew up in the Soviet Union, right? And in the Soviet Union, there was no private enterprise. It was old state, which was a really fascinating background for me uh, when I ended up becoming an entrepreneur because... Uh, Again, it was uh, unknown. The state is supposed to do everything and anything for us. Uh, and it was actually very bad at that. So that was actually a great foundation for my current conviction about uh, uh, entrepreneurship and, and things like that. And, uh, and then I lived through the Soviet Union falling apart and uh, became an accidental entrepreneur and, uh, and basically did that for a couple of decades. And uh, then a few years ago, I pretty much retired. Um, and um, and I forgot uh, where you started with your question. In terms what, of what, uh, crypto, no, no, I, I, I remember it now. Like, I've always been a technologist, right? Like, I started computer science in the university, and uh, I had uh, a, a job at the bank as a software engineer. Then I worked for a big uh, multi multinational company in the kind of computer services department. And then I uh, co-founded the business with their couple of uh, friends and, uh, and a Danish uh, 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 company. And uh, so I've been in technology and I've been, and I also have a very curious mind. So I always kind of been reading a lot of stuff and uh, listening to lots of podcasts and whatnot. And I think it was the podcast by Steve Gibson, which might still be running. I listened to that podcast for over a decade. It's a great podcast about security uh, that's kind of one of my hobbies, if you will. But he also is ha- a guy with a very curious mind, and he mentioned Bitcoin. I believe that was probably in uh, 2011. And uh, and I was very curious about it. And at that time, I did not really get deeply into that. But uh, the technology sounded uh, uh, sounded fascinating because uh, can I understood a few reference points from uh, which Bitcoin was created, like, for example, the... Uh, hashing solutions that people try to apply to uh, uh, email spam and stuff like that. So, like, it felt like this is something very interesting. And I mentioned that to my son, but I didn't really 
do much about it then for a while just because you know i had the business uh you can say growing business or a struggling business you know quite often that's one and the same and i was uh, gonna say it's, a, it's yeah, the same yeah exactly right and i had uh, uh my son and i had a very young daughter so i was very busy so i didn't really spend much time in that but uh, as i mentioned that uh uh, Bitcoin to my son, and uh, he got really fascinated by that, and he started going deeper and deeper into that, right? And uh, so I guess he was, um, what was he? He was about 17 back then, and uh, obviously as a young adult, and uh, kind of, no, earlier, uh, yeah, around that time, 16, 17, and I was very curious and kind of like uh, how his uh, life is unfolding. He was in, in high school, right? And uh, then he ended up uh, really going into this whole uh, crypto and Bitcoin space. And uh, I guess uh, one major um, involvement of his that I started tracking was uh, he was a writer for, he was a co-founder uh, and a writer for Bitcoin Magazine, which was a really fascinating uh, enterprise too, because when they started that, I was very Mm, surprised that they decided to do actual print publication. I actually have a few uh, print, a bunch of copies from, uh, you know, 2011, 2012, uh, from that magazine. And uh, the magazine was really fascinating that it was dedicated to crypto and Bitcoin, obviously very early on. And uh, it's a very nice, high color, glossy, high, you know, <laughs> uh, beautiful production. And they managed to build a business out of that, right? Which, um, so I, can, I was watching that. I was reading on basically in each uh, issue, uh, half of the articles they were written by Vitalik or edited by him. And uh, it was, uh, and I was, uh, as a proud father, if you will, and also as a very curious mind, I was reading a lot of his stuff. And that was the foundation of my uh, education about crypto, right? And, and then eventually as he, uh, he um, graduated from high school, then he went into... Uh, uh, University of Waterloo studied computer science for a while, but then decided to drop out because he didn't quite connect with with the academia, if you will, academic environment uh, as such, yep. and uh, he really wanted to do something in the real world. And he traveled the world, got involved in a few different projects, and then I believe it was uh, fall of 2013 when he uh, shared with me his uh, uh, a draft of his uh, white paper for Ethereum. And again, like I had, uh, by the time I had somewhat decent, very superficial understanding of uh, crypto, uh, and obviously Web3 was not uh, invented, that particular label was not invented yet. But uh, there, he, his gift is really expressing very complicated things in a very simple, easy to understand terms. So when I read the document, I'm like, oh, wow, this sounds really interesting, even though I could not have envisioned how big it would, would have become, but it was definitely uh, a wonderful glimpse into possibilities of that, right? So can I, and that's, that's when it all started. That's a really interesting, you know, uh, story. You know, the fact that he started, you know, kind of really in, in a public research type, type way with the magazine, um, and then, and then, you know, flowed into, you know, here's my white paper and, you know, clearly we know most of the rest of the story. How, I, I, again, I really want to talk to you as, as a father, because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've got a 14 year old son who, who, you know, trades cryptocurrencies, NFTs, all these things yeah. and, and, and really is interested in this stuff. How do you nurture without, you know, with, with boundaries, but also kind of understanding that it's like, you have to finish high school. 
you <laughs> have to you you have to at least you know pretend like college is important. But how do you, how did you manage yeah. his interest levels um, and, and still keep him focused on on driving forward? You know, the way I think about this is we as parents. Uh, what we do most of the time with our kids, generalizing, is we we all have our own view of the world, our fears, our desires. And then what we do is basically we take those and we imprint them on people around us, starting with our kids, right? And quite often, you know, if we grew up with a lot of fears about money, then we're like, oh, you should become a doctor or a lawyer or some other profession that's supposed to make you lots of money and stuff like that, right? Or if we're scared about, you know, not having enough money or about health or whatever. This is the way how we project and then imprint it on our children, right? Uh, and that happens all the time. And like uh, in some little ways and in big ways, it's like uh, like uh, when I was growing up in the Soviet Union, I, I got really interested in computers uh, in, as a teenager, but there was very little access and the technology was very new and Soviet Union was very isolated from uh, the world, well, as Russia is now becoming crazy uh, kind of circle but uh so i i really wanted him to have access to that because uh, pretty early on it was clear that he had a very uh, bright mind very curious mind and i was really trying to feed him the stuff that i remembered was of interest to me as a child right and they like i figured okay you know what like as a child i would have loved to have access to computer and uh, that was like beyond all the, you know, just drawing, whatever kids do and playing in sandbox. But when he was uh, somewhere between three and four, we gave him our old IBM PC, uh, you know, hey, here's the, this toy for you, right? And he started playing with that. And it was really fascinating that he really took to that, right? And uh, his mind was very much about numbers, and he loved playing with Excel. Again, like uh, uh, that old IBM PC, it's not like we could easily go out and buy a lot of fun educational software, even like uh, the cost was prohibitive, the access to that was very hard. But I had, there was Microsoft Office on that computer, so he ended up playing a lot with Excel. And, you know, it was a very versatile tool even back then, and you could draw stuff, and you could do this and that. But then he discovered that he could type numbers, and he figured out the formulas, and then kind of really fascinated him, right? Uh, and to kind of expand on your question, right, and some other little uh, illustrations, it's like, you know, uh, I've heard about, uh, you know, again, in the Soviet Union, with the state doing everything, there was very little competition. So there was very limited, uh, like, what kind of toys or other things available to kids. So kind of as uh, we got out of, you know, Russia started changing, and we actually moved to Canada uh, when he was about six years old. Um, and I wanted to buy him all the toys that I could see, like, you know, oh, check out this uh, Lego construction set and this and that. And I would buy buy them for him, again, like, you know, projecting my own desire to play with those things and whatever. But then instead of building those, uh, you know, uh, uh, space planes or whatever, he was actually trying to build numbers from Legos and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so returning to your original question, what I now deeply think is that, oh, you know, deeply convinced in is that the best way, the most important way we as parents can um, nurture our children is to be sensitive to what they want to do, to be sensitive to what they like, to be sensitive to their emotions, to be sensitive to who they are. Because again, most of the time, that's not what we do. We have our projection. This is how you will be successful and happy and whatever, right? And especially 
entrepreneurs, right? These entrepreneurs are typically achievers. So like we want to do stuff. We want to achieve stuff. So like, hey, this is a program. You have to do this. You have to go there. You have to do this, right? It's like very common that we project that. But again, like my personal uh, conviction is that this is not the way you um, support a happy uh, uh, human being. Because for me, uh, I would say this, like, you know, success or, you know, people seek happiness, but quite often they misunderstand that and they think that they can find that through success or pleasure or love or family or whatever, but they cannot, you know, like, you know, it's kind of like, it's only found, if you will, in the direct recognition of the happiness of what is. And the happiness of what is, like, you know, again, children, they have their own unique preferences and, and desires and, uh, and issues and sensitivities and whatnot. And also, besides my son, I have two young daughters. And uh, as they were growing up, I was trying to also get them interested in this, you know, in, uh, in computer sciences and, you know, their games that teach children this stuff and that stuff. But that didn't quite work for them. You know, my uh, other daughter, one of my daughter, older daughter, she uh, turned out to be a wonderful artist and she's really good with that stuff, right? So again, like, you know, uh, it was really important for, for, for us to not push our own preferences and thoughts of who she should be, but rather support her in her own journey, right? And then the youngest daughter, she's still, she's 10 now. She's still discovering herself and she has interest in all, all kinds of things, right? So again, to conclude my very long answers to your question, no, no, it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's not about a certain recipe. There's no recipe. That's really my answer. Like, you know, as long as we think there's a recipe for nurturing a happy, successful human being, we are, we will struggle. But the thing is, like, you know, as long as we're sensitive, right, and that sensitivity start, starts with ourselves. So something happens with our child, and, you know, again, like, a child grows up, and I'm sure that you have encountered that, then here's this pattern of behavior, or here's something about them that we are scared, oh, this, this is not right, and then, God forbid, then there are some experts or doctors and say, oh, here's the label for your child. They have this and that, right? And they're like, oh, they have a label, you know, should I give them some magical pills that now resolve this problem? But the thing is, like, a human being is not a box where you could put labels on and fix the problems whatever. They're really infinite. It's like, you know, and as long as we can just be, again, sensitive to what is happening, support them in that, nurture them in that, be with that, that that is our contribution to... who they become. And just, sorry, just one last thing that I want to mention before that, right? Also, um, a child is not like people quite often ask me, are you proud of uh, um, what Vidalik has become? And in a way you can say that I'm very happy for everything he has achieved and and everything, right? Um, That happened to him. And I'm very uh, excited about the possibility of having a front row seat to this whole Web3 movement. But also, you know what? I was just one of so many humans uh, influencing and nurturing him for myself and, you know, his mom and his stepmom, his grandparents, his school, the environment here in Canada, all of those things, you know, uh, know, that saying that, you know, a child uh, is made by a whole village or whatever is the same goal, right? I, I deeply believe in that. 
That's fabulous. You know, and one of the things that, and, and, and I agree with everything you just said, and it's, it's a lot easier to say than it is to do, to, to take that step back and allow them yes. to grow like that. From you as, you know, at that time when, you know, again, you, you had an active business, you're an entrepreneur, and we, we understand, you know, again, struggling versus succeeding is almost the same thing. So you're putting yeah. a lot of time and energy and effort into work. Yeah. It, how much time do you think that you were spending allowing, you know, Vitalik to listen to what you were doing or talking to him about what you did in, in a day to day? Quite a bit. You know, like that's all in all, that's also my philosophy for a successful business. I believe that uh, in the modern world, successful businesses like is different, very different from the old hierarchical structures, which suppose that here's the top commander that knows the best, knows, you know, the best way to move forward. And then here's the hierarchy of his troops and he says what to do and they just implement his decisions, right? That, that's kind of the old model, right? And that model is totally messed up. And again, as a quick comment on current events, basically what we have in Russia, we have a paranoid, uh, you know, maniac Putin, he kind of has his own view of the world, and then kind of that's now implemented by his supporters and his army. That's kind of pretty crazy. And I think in a successful enterprise, it's very different. It's like successful enterprises where the whole organization is very sensitive to what is going on. And actually, I'm a huge believer in the non-hierarchical ways to organize a business, and that's kind of how I ended up restructuring my my, my uh, last business that I sold. Uh, and uh, one aspect of this is I'm a huge believer in transparency. So in the, all of, in the businesses that I've built, so uh, last uh, few of them at least, is that we always had full transparency with all of our employees. How are we doing financially? What is going on with sales? What is going on with this and that? Kind of what kind of customer support issues we have and whatnot. Uh, so actually every month we, uh, we would, uh, the whole team would together collaborate and create a presentation uh, state of the business for the current month with all the KPIs and all the important things that were presented to everybody in the business. So everybody in the business had uh, a view into what's happening with the business. And actually, then I would take the presentation from time to time, and I would actually discuss things with Vitalik. Hey, Vitalik, check it out. This is kind of what we're doing. And here are the KPIs. Here are some ways. And it was really fascinating because obviously he had a bright mind, and we had really cool discussions about uh, things, even though he obviously didn't have specific insights into a particular customer base or things like sales and marketing, but he also, he always had really interesting questions. Uh, what was also fascinating, like, you know, jumping ahead a little bit for me to kind of looking back at that, um, he, um, uh, growing up in Canada, in Canada, if you will, uh, it's much more socialist, if you will, than the U S right. Uh, and, uh, so there was a lot of, uh, if you will, brainwashing in the schools about the unions and this and that and kind of more socialized approach to things, right? And uh, that was his bias and my bias as kind of growing up in the Soviet Union and uh, mm, having seen their ultimate, uh, what, what it becomes when the state becomes the ultimate expression of those socialist ideas, it becomes just a rigid totally uh, ineffective, uh, rigid structure that doesn't quite work. So it was interesting that the kind of discussions we had, and when we and when he ended up leading Ethereum and building Ethereum, it was really f fascinating for me that uh, the way Ethereum is structured and uh, the whole organization, 
is a, is a, is a very different beast from a typical um, private enterprise, right? And most people totally, it's hard for people to understand, especially for entrepreneurs, because again, we want things to happen. We want things to be effective. We want things to happen fast and stuff like that. But Ethereum as such, it's a, it's a very different uh, type of organization. It's built much more on open source principles. It's a very mushy, very loosely connected, however, very resilient and very creative uh, organization. You know, instead of like a, a mechanical being that's kind of efficient at doing some stuff, it's more like uh, something alive, something that emerges from so many people and there is so much inefficiency and there is so much... Uh, redundancy, so much other stuff, but also now over the years, kind of watching the Ethereum community grow and develop and build what they're building, I'm really um, fascinated by uh, that uh, analogy with like, you know, this is much more of a life system that is, uh, uh, that is achieving so much and building their new infrastructure for the world versus many businesses that end up being very efficient and but also very rigid and going in directions like you know maximizing profit but then you know really messing up the environment messing up lives of the employees and so many other aspects right so this was really interesting for me to kind of in my interaction with the dialect kind of see that difference in approaches and learn from that yeah i mean it's clearly a very different mindset you know to to go from an you know to leave communist russia to become an entrepreneur and then your your son, you know, appears and he's got this open source, you know, very, you know, like open and inclusive, you know, environment. What, you know, I, I, again, I, I really loved the, the conversation. You know, talk to me about some of those early like pain points that you guys, you know, maybe were butting heads where he was like, you have experience. You're you're the you're the dad. You have experience in this in this field. Was there right. any kind of those disagreements in the early days where you were like, no, 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 this is how things are done? And, well, and some- you see, I was also not really, if you will, imposing myself because uh, I was happy to, and that was also, if you will, one aspect of my parenting approach is that uh, as, as he was growing up, uh, I see the role of a parent is to make sure the child is safe. But beyond that, I don't think it's on us to impose on them how they should be, how, you know, what kind of views they should have. And also our children don't learn from the things they tell them how they th- should think or whatever, how they should behave. They learn basically by example. They learn by from how we behave around them, right? And uh, as with, when Vitalik was growing up, if you will, a more typical approach, if we disagree, was not like, again, quite often parenting, we end up being violent. We say, when we discuss with something with a child, and the son says, why is that? And we say, oh, this is how it is. Why is that? This is how it is. And at some point, many parents, they become like, no, shut up. You know, I said that. I'm more important, right? Because it really starts to mess up with our ego. We don't like to be questioned, right? And... Uh, I hope that I didn't do too much of that. And I know that in uh, many of our conversations, it was more like, okay, you know what? Here are the choices. My recommendation is this choice. You you can go ahead and make this other choice. You know, again, like, uh, I'm... It's probably one aspect also of my life philosophy. Growing up in a very authoritarian environment, uh, my personal views on life are much more... Uh, if you will, libertarian, right? So, like, I simplify, but I think it's wrong for people to impose their views on other people. Um, so, back to that, like, when Vitalik was building Ethereum, 
I was around and I was always happy to contribute my thoughts and ideas and I did, you know, here and there, but uh, only if he was looking for them, only if he was uh, uh, open to them. Uh, but it was not like, you know, oh, you should be doing things like this way. It was more like, oh, interesting. I would think that things should happen this way and they're happening a different way. So I would share my opinions, but we would never really clash about this stuff because, again, like, I'm not building that thing. You know, he's doing that. I'm just uh, an observer and uh, I have my ideas, but that, that's pretty much it. Were you, were you still uh, running your companies uh, yes. during the startup years? So you, yeah, you of course, were busy. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, totally. Yeah, was he? Was he? Uh, did he stay near home uh, during during those early years, or did he, had he moved away after his travels? Um, well, twenty thirteen is uh, end of twenty thirteen is when he came up with their uh, concept of Ethereum, right? And uh, mm-hmm. then I would say uh, in uh, twenty fourteen he was kind of some parts of that year he was at home, parts of the year he was traveling quite a bit. You know whether that was in. Uh, California and some, you know, in Switzerland and some other places around the world. But basically, ever since uh, after that uh, first year, he was uh, the citizen of the world, traveling, constantly traveling, um, no, not staying in a particular place longer than a couple of weeks, but engaging with so many people worldwide, right? Because that was also one aspect of the vision of Ethereum, is for the community for to be very inclusive, because uh, Bitcoin as such, because of whatever reasons, it, uh, it's much more US-centric, but uh, their uh, philosophy of the core community, uh, of the core group of people who uh, started Ethereum, they wanted to, to be much more inclusive internationally as well. So that's, uh, and Vitalik kind of loved travel, he loves foreign languages, so that's one of his hobbies, so he was really happy uh, to do that and he still travels uh, a lot he, that's that's what he does basically evangelizing connecting with people learning from the different uh, participants in the ecosystem and, and so on there's quite a, there's quite a few ethereum conferences around the world so i can only yeah, imagine yeah. He's, i think he's, right, he's right now one is coming up in amsterdam yeah Fabulous, fabulous. All right, I've, I have absolutely hogged the uh, conversation so far. So, Mr. Goss, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn Dimitri over to you for a few questions before I uh, jump back into it. Yeah, I guess more of a follow-up thought. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things is that, like, how Vitalik has managed to actually, like, at least seemingly stay, like, a very nice, very humble guy, right? Because I think with just the massive amount of success, mm-hmm. which is in- impressive in and of itself... But I think the like the ability to then like not and I think many other people in the crypto space did not succeed at that right. But I think the ability of despite that actually staying like a really nice guy um, and not becoming crazy. I mean, I think to me that's like like the yeah potentially even more impressive achievement than doing yes. it to begin with, right? And so I think I don't know. Absolutely, just, I fully agree with you. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So I, I think that was more my my thought around how'd you keep how'd you keep how'd you keep them humble. Were you, able, were you able to hear that? How how were you able to keep you know how did how were you able to instill and how does Vitalik stay as humble as he is? <laughs> but you see, that's a really interesting question, right? Because if I think that I instilled that, right, then it's a belief that oh, I've done that, right? This is really a very powerful story of the ego, and mm-hmm. if I have that pattern, then very likely I would have imprinted that on Vitalik, and then Vitalik would be like, oh, check out Ethereum, <laughs> check out, you know, all that they have done, right? So actually, 
my belief that I have not instilled that got reflected, you know, if you will, in the fact that uh, it got instilled on him, right? Again, like, so humans just pick up how we, our behavior versus like, you know, what we tell them, oh, this is how you should be. This is the right way to be, right? So uh, in general, I would say that uh, end of the day, we humans, what we seek is that freedom and happiness, right? And uh, I think that uh, he ended up being uh, one of lucky humans who was not, mm, who ended up with a lot of internal freedom, right? And when we have this internal freedom, then we just do stuff. We don't do stuff because, because we want to be seen as successful, as important as this and that. But we do stuff because we're curious about it, because it feels good. And, you know, and actually, whenever we find a human being like that, it's very attractive to us, right? And actually, it was really interesting to observe that in early, early years of Ethereum, uh, Vitalik didn't want to be the leader of Ethereum. And uh, uh, he actually was trying to find some other people who would run this and take this forward. He just wanted to do his research and whatnot. But it was interesting that other people in their Ethereum community, they were pushing him back into, into the forefront saying, no, Vitalik, you know what? We actually want you to lead this community forward, right? But it's also a very different kind of leadership because, again, like, uh, it's not the kind of leadership that you see in a typical uh, corporation when you have this powerful CEO that gives orders. That, that's, not, that's not the way Ethereum community is structured at all. He's a thought leader, but the way he leads, he basically does his research, he talks to people, he shares, like, hey, guys, I think this would be a good idea. But again, the way he does that is like, here it is, right? And then some people might might act on that. Like, for example, I don't know if you ever come across the story of Uniswap, which is a largest decentralized exchange. But if you just Google Uniswap history, you will find the story of how that happened to be. And it's really fascinating. It was just came, you know, happened out of an idea. And then some people happened to take this idea and move this forward. And so many things in Ethereum, uh, this is how they basically happen. It's like, you know, some people come up with ideas, other people think that they're good and bad, there's discussion, but it's not It's not like somehow centralized, uh, organized uh, in some centralized manner, in an efficient manner. And uh, it's interesting that there, uh, like I've come across over the years, I've come across quite a bit of criticism from uh, uh, VC community, for example, that no, 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 Ethereum is, is, uh, is not doing it right. They should just like become efficient. They should hire all these developers and do this and do that. And you know what? It really depends, right? It depends on yeah. what you're optimizing for. If they were optimizing for creating a specific product, you know, and making maybe the most money or whatever it is, right? Maybe they're right. But that's not what Ethereum is optimizing for. Actually, uh, it's much more of a, an emergent structure that is optimized for creativity and resiliency, not necessarily for efficiency and the speed of achieving those things and so on. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, I know there's like a ton of co-founders as well. So I, to me, as somebody who's run companies, right, if there's that many people involved, that sounds hard. Um, so, but it's it's a really <laughs> interesting point of the more consensus-led organizational structure, I guess, especially with your entrepreneurial background too. Yes. That's, that's just a fascinating thing of how that worked really well. And I think DAOs are kind of becoming that as well. But then it feels like we haven't really figured out DAOs yes. yet in a sense of they seem to make some weird decisions. Oh, largely. totally. We're so early, right? I do think that DAOs are the future, 
of how humans will organize. But I think that, uh, uh, yeah, m- most of the time, quite often, they are very messy. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of reinventing the wheel. There's a lot of all kinds of issues with doubts, right? And, like, uh, and that's the beauty. And uh, well, humans do all that all the time, right? Like, uh, uh, it's funny that kind of, I think that a lot of DAOs would do well to learn the lessons humanity has already learned from uh, building corporations and non-hierarchical corporations and things such as guilds and uh, and so on, right? And, and we're learning from that. But quite often we also, I think especially, I've seen that a lot in technology all of my life. I've been in technology. It's like, you know, when you build a system and then developers, a uh, new development team comes in and says, oh, that's a piece <laughs> of crap. We should build it from scratch. It will be so much better, right? But uh, uh, again, like... Uh, it's really important for us humans to, even when we do something that feels and seems very new and very different, but, okay, let's look back at the history. Let's look at the lessons. What can we learn from that? So, I mean, was Ethereum as messy back then as DAOs are now, and it's just kind of gotten more organized? And is that messiness what made it so creative? Or, like, was it, like, not as... And, and I don't know. I'm just... Obviously, it's a vast generalization, but it really feels like a lot of the DAOs, like... I don't know, it just feels, uh, and like being YPO, right? Leadership is like a huge part yeah. of YPO. So it's kind of like that viewpoint. So I'm really curious yes. of how that leadership actually ended up working with that many people. And if, it, or if the lack of leadership really was what led to the creativity. Yeah. I mean, it was very messy. No question about that. Right. And actually, uh, it's also funny that, uh, now to the success of Ethereum, we have all this co-founders, right. And, there's no question there were actually many, many uh, extremely important contributors to what uh, the way Ethereum has evolved. But many of uh, very important contributors have never claimed to be co-founders or anything like that. And also I know quite a number of people who are called co-founders, but they really had mm, very limited uh, and sometimes even detrimental impact to the organization. But Whatever it is, right? Uh, so yes, it, it was a very messy structure with a, but also with a lot of different uh, people doing different things, and that's again like there was a lot of uh, freedom and creativity in that process, but also a lot of messiness, a lot of uh, uh, loss of inefficiency, and not necessarily you know moving uh, in a certain direction. There was more like a living organism, like. Rain, you know, moving around versus like a, an army marching toward a certain direction with a certain plan. Oh man, yeah, that's so wild. I mean, it's it's such a, so interesting to see like how that ended up working out because like I feel like if you tell most CEOs that run organizations like, oh, let's try this, they would be like, oh wow, you are crazy. That is never going to have even any chance of working, right? So it's just it's just so interesting how. Yeah the use case and the economic model and the team and the leadership structure just kind of all came together in this case and just ended up being this like just totally new, totally different thing versus, I don't know, if somebody else had been right. leading it, it would have been more of like a, like they could have like made a mistake early on and hired like whatever, like an MBA that did spreadsheets to like help lead and it would have turned into something code completely different is my guess, right? Like, like I don't know, somebody from McKinsey or somebody would have just, totally, would right. have just turned out to be t- something completely different. Yeah. And, and you know, I've come across this uh, concept, metaphor, if you will, is that uh, any kind of initiative or project uh, has the highest chances of succeeding 
when its organizational structure maps to the goal of uh, of the project, right? And the thing is, like, you know, given that their mission, the purpose of Ethereum is this decentralized infrastructure for the world, I don't believe that that can be achieved, could have been achieved by some kind of rigid centralized structure. And for example, kind of when I look at some other competing efforts like uh, Solana, which seems like to be wonderful, well-organized, very efficient system, but the way they're going and the sec- you know their uh, compromises they make with centralization for me that's like mm, I I have questions about their viability of that approach in terms of building that infrastructure right and for a whole bunch of reasons and that for me also became more obvious uh, in uh, in uh, in the current uh, in the view of current events was you know the war and, you know, all the various efforts at regulation and censorship and sanctions and whatnot. Yeah, I think the multi-chainness of the ecosystem is definitely going to be just hugely impactful, right? I think the, what, where is it going to trend to? Because it seems like a lot of the newer chains definitely trend to lesser central, uh, lesser levels of decentralization, just mostly because they kind of have to if they right. want to actually deliver on something, right? But so it's going to be really interesting if there's going to yeah. be this like whole ecosystem of hundreds of chains with varying levels of decentralization for different use cases. Cause I think, I don't know, I think that's where I somewhat disagree on some of the, like everything has to be maximally decentralized, right? Some things like it's fine if it's just less decentralized, right? So I think it's gonna be really interesting to see where that, where that ends up going, but then do you just slide back into a yes. lack of central, a lack of decentralization just once you go down that road. So uh, it's, it's, yeah. 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 And it's fascinating that uh, when we do that, right, but then life brings us all kinds of uh, events and surprises, right? And, uh, like, here in Canada, we had those protests, and then the government decided to really stomp on them, and they ended up doing this uh, crazy uh, financial censorship of people who protested, including going after their crypto. And then also people who thought like, oh, yeah, well, crypto is decentralized and wonderful and out of government reach. But they realized, oh, but if I keep my money on a centralized exchange, it's actually still very much a centralized system and it's not out of government reach. So, you know, I think there was a, their sanctions and the censorship, uh, stuff like that. They were really important wake up calls for people who like doing stuff and like, oh, wow, look at the current events. Uh, things are actually different than I thought. Yeah, I, I think your point is really valid there on to of like the level of understanding people have, right? Because there's all these stats of like, oh, whatever, 20% of Americans own crypto, right? But it's like, like no percent of that is actually like on chain, right? I think there's like 10 million active monthly addresses on Ethereum, right? It's like this really, really low number of actual on-chain activity. Right. And so the difference there is just like... Mm-hmm. I think once people actually start understanding what it actually is and not just like, oh, it's the speculative asset I buy on Coinbase and just kind of hold, I, I really yeah. am super excited to see when people, because I mean, a lot of these concepts, right, where it's just like Web3, I mean, it's not about like just making money so everyone gets a bit richer, right? I mean, there's so many like the decentralization, all that stuff, like how it impacts everyone. Uh, I'm super psyched to see how that kind of ends up turning yes. out. Yes, for me, it's really about their. Uh, possibilities for inclusivity for humans all around the globe for the, to be participants in the worldwide economy, right? Like if you're a bright kid in Pakistan and you have internet connection, 
there's stuff that you can do. There's actually awesome stuff you can do. You can build a wonderful DeFi startup. You can actually be an artist somewhere in Ukraine and like, you know, you can create wonderful art and sell it and fundraise for the efforts to support Ukraine, stuff like that. It's really fascinating how thing, those things are now becoming poss- are actually now possible. So, so real quick, Dimitri, and, and I want to uh, dive in on a couple of things. The world has changed quite a bit since, you know, the original white paper for Bitcoin, you know, which was, you know, probably started back in 2008-ish. <clears throat> and, mm-hmm. and, you know, now that we're, there's so much worry about the, the um, not just the economy, but, but now ecological, um, you know, yes. impact. And, and, you know, clearly uh, uh, Bitcoin is, is a proof of work and I don't believe it will ever change from proof of work. And Ethereum was started as proof of work and is, it's very, very solid. What's your feelings on on the the conversion that's currently happening today? Yeah. And I think that they even deployed a, a, a test net uh, that just a few days ago. That's that's moving yeah. to proof of stake. What, what's your feelings on on this conversion? Yeah, it's a really fascinating discussion about this stuff because it's really interesting. Because obviously, Bitcoin and Ethereum and all cryptocurrencies have very complex technologies. There's a lot of uh, cryptography and math, and you know. Uh, incredible engineering behind all of that, and starting with Bitcoin again as the granddaddy of all of that. Uh, and then, as as that com- very complex stuff is being explained to a wider audience, we have to use metaphors and simplifications, right? And then we use terms like mining and proof of work and whatever, right? And and, and it's really interesting that people end up totally uh, getting lost in those metaphors. So for me, if we go beyond if we go outside of those simplistic metaphors, right? So what is mining? Mining is a way for computers that want to participate in this, to basically provide their services to this decentralized system uh, to get paid for their services. This is what mining is uh, in a nutshell. And they get paid from uh, transaction fees and also the system pays a little bit on top from by creating new currency on top of that, right? So, uh, and there is a mechanism that ensures the fairness and prevents fraud of that process that they, 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 those computers, the service and the network, the people providing those computing services, that we, they've been held honest. And the thing is, like, uh, and this is just technology, technology based on a whole bunch of, again, wonderful ideas, cryptography, engineering. And if you look at any technologies that we humans have invented, all technologies, they always we always invent something better. You cannot point to a specific technology and say, oh, we've never improved on that technology. Well, we have. You know, we have the steam engines and we have combustion engines. Now we have electrical engines and so on, right? This is unstoppable. Progress is unstoppable. And this is even much more the case in computer technology. So basically, if we use this very high-level understanding and we say, okay, there is technology used in uh, Bitcoin, and we call the technology proof of work, and that technology is used to ensure uh, the fairness and uh, uh, to avoid, to, to keep those people providing their services, to keep them honest. So the question is, like, and that technology has certain characteristics, and one of them is it uses a lot of energy because of the way that particular technology is structured. And again, it was a wonderful invention at the time, and now... At the scale that I don't think that even the original inventor of Bitcoin could have imagined, that technology is using lots and lots of energy, right? So now is the question, will humans be able to improve on that technology, right? And my, for me, the answer is obvious. Of course, 
<laughs> we will, because we are humans. This is what we do. We always invent that, right? It's not it's not necessarily easy. It takes time, right? Because again, like Ethereum was launched with a clear mission that yes, we will switch to proof of stake. And they actually thought that that would happen within a year, a couple of years from the launch. That's not what happened because they totally underestimated the complexity of research and engineering to make sure that the new technology of mining, proof of stake, the the goal was to make sure that it can guarantee, can provide the same security guarantees, but also greatly improve on the efficiency of that uh, technological algorithm. And and I believe from kind of me watching that unfold over the last, whatever it is, uh, seven, eight years, that I think that the problem has now been solved. And again, Ethereum have launched a proof of stake a year and a half ago as a kind of uh, as a secondary system to the main system that still runs proof of work. And they've been very, very careful in testing this and kind of that uh, final switchover is going to happen probably sometime this summer. I'm here in uh, July, August, most likely. Uh, so there was a, a lot of uh, thinking put into this. And uh, again, like, you know, uh, that took lots of very smart people many, many years to get to this point. But now that it's when Ethereum proves that to the whole world that this is possible, right? And proof of stake, uh, the way it's realized on Ethereum, will decrease their uh, energy um, requirements by a factor of something like, I forgot, but let's say a couple of hundred. That That's on, on this scale, right? So I think this is wonderful, right? And in the same way that, you know, there was a coal engine and a combustion <laughs> engine and electrical engine, things will get improved. So proof of stake is not going to be the final answer, but it will be, it is a wonderful improvement, right? And I think that Bitcoin will have to deal with that uh, situation somehow. I don't know how and what will unfold in that ecosystem, but I'm personally I'm very excited that Ethereum is finally fulfilling its per- the original purpose, the goal of kind of moving forward with the technology that provides actually same and better security at much much lower cost to the environment. So, so, so the the belief is the security of of Ethereum's proof of stake rollout is actually better yes. than than the proof of work originally yes. implemented. Yes, because but, again, like security is uh, security engineers, they know that security is not an abstract concept. It's like security against what, right? Like you have to look at particular scenarios and uh, uh, and a particular scenario that uh, for major public blockchains is like, okay, what if somebody decides to attack the system, right? For whatever reason, they want to censor that and stuff like that. So how do you deal with that, right? And kind of when you, and there was a lot of wonderful research and write-ups on the different scenarios, right? And I think that their depth of uh, protection, their depth of security layers provided by proof of stake, they're actually much, much, much higher than anything that proof of work can do because end of the day, there was only like, a uh, couple of rounds of play before proof of work gets overwhelmed if a really powerful aggressor starts attacking the system, you know. But for proof of stake, that can that's a game that can be played for a long, long time. Yeah, I've always been confused. Like, I mean, I understand proof of work, obviously, but I think the one thing that's always kind of like eluded me is like proof of work just seems like proof of stake. Just you stake into hardware, right? You have to go buy hardware and power yes. with your money, and it just feels like this extra step that proof of stake like kind of just avoids, right? But I mean, you're staking your money into whatever you're 24 months right. worth of hardware, right? And then you're yes. deploying it. So I never really got the logic of the, now yes. maybe it's more accessible, but you still have to need, I mean, maybe it was different five years ago, 10 years ago, right? And you just run it on your computer. 
But I feel like today, I mean, we have massive mining pools, massive, like, there's like four or five hardware manufacturers, right? It just feels like the centralization aspects on that end have just become huge. And so it feels like you're just... Oh, it, it has, right? Yes. Yeah. Like, you know, when I talk to some people now, some friends, and they're thinking about getting to proof-of-work mining, and I'm like, hey, guys, at this point, uh, for a small guy to get into this business, it's like, you know... One one dollar that you put into this will be only worth like uh, at most like ten percent of the dollar that the big guy puts into this, just because they get the economies of scale, access to much cheaper electricity, uh, their discounts on hardware, and so on. Right? But in proof of stake, it's like you know you put one dollar, I put one dollar, our dollars. You, we might have different number of dollars, different amounts, right? But our respective returns are the same, so it's much more. Uh, uh, democratic, if you will. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm super excited for the proof of stake switch. Yeah. When, when, um, so, so let's talk about, you know, and I really never talk about, you know, too much of tokenomics, but, you know, with Ethereum, you guys were kind of the leaders of going, okay, we're going to, we're going to deploy this. It's going to have real, real use case. Um, was there ever a, a thought? And, you know, I, I kind of am referring a little bit to the gas prices, which is, you know, any, if anyone's going to make any complaint about Ethereum, it's just the gas prices, which yes. is, you know, part of why it is secure. Um, but, you know, w- was there ever, you know, I'm sure there was a concern, but what was, how did we end up here with these high gas prices? And, you know, what's, what's kind of the thoughts of how to get that down? Well, it, it's very simple end of the day because, the only reason we have gas is to prevent the system from being spammed. And, uh, and then gas prices, uh, the current gas prices is just a function of how much demand is out there now for, uh, you, you can, you know, one of the metaphors that I use for blockchains is they're like a public notary. Everybody submits their transactions to them and then just like they verify, they stamp them and, and so on, right? And the public notary they have to do their job really well to be trustworthy, right? So that's like we trust countries like Switzerland for this and that. And, you know, uh, so the thing is, like, you know, you have this system and they have to do a really thorough uh, job to make sure that the things they stamp and not rise in the case of blockchain, basically verifying the transactions that, yes, you know, this guy had this money, they transferred this money to this guy, you know, the transaction got, got executed. They have to be very thorough about this, right? And the thing is, like, uh, as, a dip, as a, the society recognizes a huge value in that, that, you know what, this public infrastructure system can now do this instead of me going to this hugely inefficient, centralized, I don't know, land ownership thing or, you know, this government instead. All of this can be notarized by this public blockchain in a very efficient manner. So demand has skyrocketed, right? But the system has been, only has this much capacity. So really it's a matter of capacity, right? And uh, so the merge, uh, the proof of uh, stakes, which it's not going to change that in particular, uh, and in the case of Ethereum, uh, again, like it was really fascinating to to watch how much effort and research and thinking and engineering went into this whole resolving this particular uh, question for the last uh, again seven eight years. Uh, and the answer to that is uh, rollups, right? And uh, again, this is built on a really very new branch of technology. I remember when I was learning about uh, zero knowledge math, just superficially. It's a very fascinating very complex area of mathematics, which was very theoretical just 10 years ago. I remember I was walking around with Vitalik, 
and we were talking about zero knowledge stuff, like let's say maybe six years ago, and we were, and he was excited about some of the breakthroughs about this, about this stuff, and well, maybe we will soon be able to apply some of this. But again, just in in, in math and cryptography, like the unimaginable advances of that particular branch of math has uh, led us to this that now we can actually build those rollups on a theorem that. Uh, greatly increase the uh, throughput of the system by a factor of you know hundreds and thousands while maintaining full security that provided by the Ethereum blockchain. So that has been solved. It is extremely complex uh, and powerful engineering problem. And I have seen some of the new blockchains being very happy. Oh, check out our low gas gas price, whatnot. But then they end up being DDoSed and stuff like that, being spammed because as soon as you have enough activity, I mean, you cannot get around the basics of, you know, it's all a matter of uh, very simple fundamental things. Demand, supply, human behavior, people want to cheat, people want to spam, people want to get to become first in the line. It's very human. So the system, there's no magic answer to that, uh, except for a lot of very careful engineering, game theory, and building the system that is kind of finding the balance between, you know, how do you deal with those edge cases while providing their uh a reliable, verifiable way for people to notarize their transactions on the public blockchain. So yeah, that is being solved, and uh, I basically think that this is the year, 2022 is the year when we will see uh, uh, wide adoption of those L2 technologies, and you know, you guys, I'm sure, have heard about many of them from or- Arbitrum and Optimism and ZK Sync and, uh, and yep. many others, and Polygon. Yeah. Oh, it's, it is a, a thriving ecosystem yes. to, la- to, to tie on to Ethereum. And, yes. and again, yeah. you know, layer, there's layer zeros, layer twos, layer threes. There's going to be tons of these things. You, you also, you know, just kind of, and, and again, I, I refer to you because you're, you're part of this entire movement. Um, you spawned this, this NFT, you know, yeah. the, the thought of the, these non-fungible tokens that, that can have, you know, it, Right now, the, the craze is these, you know, profile pictures and, and some JPEGs, and I, we understand the utility behind them. But but the the door that that opens for mm-hmm. smart that smart contracts um, can can be visualized through NFTs, you know, online. Yes. What what what's kind of been, you know, as you as an entrepreneur and having you know insight into these, what 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 happened in your brain when you saw this technology evolving to where it is today? It took me a while to get it. Frankly, you know, I was sitting on the sidelines. I was just like what is this? Like, you know, that makes sense. And, you know, the valuations that uh, their board apes and, you know, the crypto punks were getting, I'm like, you know, what is this thing? And like, again, logically it did make sense. And then at some point I was actually, I think it was like uh, last summer and I was meditating. I'm like, mm, okay, what if I just play with that? And I actually ended up uh, um, taking some of my Bitcoin, I have some Bitcoin holdings. I exchanged them into uh, Ether and said, you know what? Let me play with that. And, you know, I'm not expecting any return, but like I want to just, pa- just... I'd like to just pause real quick and point out that you had to buy some Ethereum. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right? So, uh, obviously, you have to, like, Ethereum being the major ecosystem for NFTs, but I, like, uh, and I have some Ethereum, but I don't want to spend that. So, I'm like, you know what? Like, I have more questions about the future of Bitcoin, personally, at the time. So, why don't I use that to play with NFTs? And I started playing, and then, like, it, my eyes has opened because I realized it's not about just technology, but it's really about so much more. It's about sense of community. It's about other things. Like, again, like we humans, we have very foundational, basic uh, human drives. Like we want to, for example, 
want to look unique and different, right? And we buy expensive watches, we buy cars, we buy whatever, right? Uh, however, as you guys can see, a lot of the human activity is moving to the digital universe. So how do you fulfill the same need to look unique and different uh, uh, or, or be part of the club, right? Like, you know, in the real world, you can put on a jersey with your favorite team login. Like, now you're part of the team, part of the community. Well, NFTs, they do that. You know, they're, they can be a beautiful piece of art that you can show off and say, yes, this is mine. You know, I own this digital piece of art. Or you can put on, you can be part of this club. Or, you know, I own a crypto punk. I'm part of this movement, right? So it, NFTs, they have actually very deep underlying psychological needs of human beings that human beings have been realizing, you know, throughout their millennia. But now this is uh, what they can do in the digital world. Yeah, that's any, really, any projects that you just love. Um, you know what? Like I, I mostly ended up getting interested in one on one on one art, and ended up just uh, collecting a whole bunch of pieces from wonderful people all around the world. And I got to meet many wonderful artists from Russia, Ukraine, uh, Turkey, Iran, Venezuela any country you name, right? And just getting in touch with them and just developing a relationship with them. And I ended up just, you know, playing with some of the things. For me, like, it was all about fun. You know, I got the Pudgy Penguin. I never got into CryptoPunks or Bored Apes because I just couldn't believe how much uh, they were growing and uh, and all of that stuff. But I did get into some others. And there was one particular project early on when I just opened into NFTs. And I think, uh, what's the name of them? Uh, Havel Teddy Bear, something like that. I ended up minting like a whole hundred of them. And they're very expensive. But just I just love the whimsical, fun uh, imager that they were providing. And like, yeah, you know. And people want to have fun. That's why we as humans, we play all those games and, you know, like Candy Crush and whatever else we do. Like, you know, again, like, you know, we have to look beyond the technology. You have to look at uh, those very foundational human drives, what we want to do. And actually, I want you to comment on that. I think that one aspect of this whole Web3 movement that people, uh, maybe many people don't quite understand yet, but... uh, it's a very big evolution for human society because we used to outsource some very important aspects of uh, our... So as a human being, I want resources to be alive, you know, to thrive and so on, right? And resources, uh, for me to manage my resources, I need money. And we have delegated our ownership of money to our governments. And our governments, for the most part, really abuse that, uh, you know, uh, the privilege we gave them to manage that. They, you know, they ended up with inflation, misusing our money, you know, corruption, lack of transparency and stuff like that. So Bitcoin was a wonderful, very important step for humans to take that back and say, you know what? I can now manage and own my own money. So this was a big deal. And I think with NFTs, now that takes it to the next stage, it's like, oh, you know what? Like, I can now own, and for human beings, it's important to own stuff, right? It's very basic function of our ego. It's like, here's me, here's my stuff, right? Again, it's very foundational to any kind of uh, uh, conscious being. It's like, and NFTs is a really wonderful way. Like, now, here's my art, or here's my, you know, I bought this, I, I have this transaction. Like, uh, on many uh, projects that I have seen, NFT projects now, for example, I'm into the whole bunch of stuff uh, in support of uh, uh, Ukraine, and now that's kind of my 
I own that. It's not like that corporation that they have the records or whatever it is. They actually don't know who, who minted those things. But me, in my, my own digital wallet, I have those things. So now the balance of power is shifting. Instead of some entity like Facebook, you know, keeping track of you, and then they have all of your data, they sell it to corporation. Now the balance of power is shifting to me as a human being. I now have my digital receipts, my NFTs, my digital currency, and I can decide who do I tell, what I own, do I own the crypto pond, do I own you know, this cryptocurrency, and I can prove it to you if I want to, but again, like, what do you give me for that, right? It's a, very, it's a big shift in this fundamental relationship between humans and uh, organizational entities, if you will. Absolutely. Goss? Yeah, I know, I just wanted to comment. I think you're... I think for me, what really helped make NFTs click is to compare them less to art. Because I mean, like I've never owned art. I feel mm-hmm. like I know very few people that actually own art, right? So it was always like, wait, why does suddenly everyone mm-hmm. care about art? And really more to what you were saying, right? It's much more like a luxury brand, right? Most people want right. a fancy car, right? And so I think just that comparison of like, no, yeah. no, this is just the next evolution of owning fancy things. And that's why it makes so much more sense yes. that everyone suddenly cares, right? We're just like, oh, shit. No, this is just a way of buying a Ferrari just digitally, right? And so I think as long as we all agree that it's equally cool as a Ferrari, then it's probably worth equally much as a Ferrari, right? So I think just that that total sh- mindset shift of like, no, 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 it's just that next iteration, which is why they've been so powerful and why they yes. changed so quickly as well. Totally, yeah, I agree with that. So, so Dimitri... Um, you know, you're, you're again, you're, you're a citizen of the world at this point, um, but you know, born born in communist Russia, you you've spent time in Ukraine, and then you all, you've also um, you know Canada and and probably any uh, the world is your oyster. How how do you see you know the the current kind of conjunction between blockchain technology and, mm-hmm. and governments and politics? You know, wh- what are you seeing from your perspective? Yeah, I think it's. Um, uh, Again, if I look specifically at the, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, uh, obviously on the, in, in very important dimension that this is a horrible human tragedy. And also it will be, I believe, uh, an impulse. It will, be, uh, it will have a major impact on uh, further adoption of crypto stuff, right? Because what I have seen, I have seen, uh, huge success by uh, Ukrainian government and various, actually, just a lot of people in the U- Ukraine mobilizing and fundraising through crypto. Because, again, as the war has started and, you know, the regular systems got disrupted, the sanctions and all kinds of stuff. But then I have seen so many people start DAOs, fundraise through, you know, their NFT projects, uh, just like uh, using the secure crypto communications and stuff like that to just like... Uh, uh, mobilize and support what they do. And I think that, uh, 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 I think actually Ukraine has a really good chance of becoming their world capital for crypto because, again, uh, in many countries, as you know, there are all these processes. The government's trying to figure out, oh, what do we do? And, you know, do we regulate that? Do we prohibit that and whatnot? And I think that Ukraine, they had to really shortcut through this process just because of the extreme circumstances they're in. And the answer is like, no, you know what? This is a wonderful tool, so let's go forward with that. So kind of like looking at success, they raised like a few hundred million from what I've heard already through crypto uh, channels uh, uh, in that, so they're actually going full full on into the crypto space, uh, uh, and uh, I think that uh, the regulations coming out of that 
uh, on the one hand. Also, I think that many people in the world just observing from outside and like seeing the sanctions, seeing like the money being confiscated, pe- people being deplatformed and stuff like that. I think it's a big wake up call for many humans like, oh, I think maybe it's time for me to check out crypto because they are, people are talking that, no, like if I have my crypto, people cannot take that away. And uh, for example, uh, for a long time, there was a lot of talk about can we build a Web3 social media platform? So I think that... and finally we're getting to the point that we're, on the one hand the technologists are mature to allow that on the other hand I think there's a lot more demand now for people after all the current events and you know the center that we're seeing that people are actually asking that there is a lot of actual demand for that so I think that, that the current events however painful they are they also will bring forward uh, uh, they will increase the demand in the world for crypto based systems from for crypto itself to NFTs to, to new um uh, angles in crypto that have not been fully explored like the social media based on the blockchain and, and stuff like that yeah and there's and there's some amazing you know decentralized social blockchains like uh what nader is doing with uh deso uh diamond and and everything else so I think you're right on. You know, blockchain is going to absolutely dynamically change uh, the planet, and whether whether a government wants to participate or not, yeah. um, you know, I, I always <laughs> like to go by like crypto doesn't care. Like, if you want to believe in it, great. If you don't, it's still going to continue to exist. Proof of work, proof of stake is going to move on. Um, yes. You know, and we we we've seen at this point now the the complete utter uh, failures of the SWIFT system. Um, yes. Whether whether you know we whether you agree with it or not, you know, Ru- Russia. I'm sure people that you know you you know their businesses and their households were taken entirely off the the international financial chain. Yeah, they may or may not have supported the war, or had any any idea it was even happening, and they were removed from the the world's economic engine. And I think that's a massive failure, massive mm-hmm. failure of the global SWIFT system. Yeah, I mean, I definitely get their logic. Like again, like I see their huge pain, the suffering in Ukraine, and I understand the logic, the desire to inflict as much pain on Russia as possible to stop this. Totally, fully support that. And also I know that uh, many people in Russia, people, for example, some of them who have been opposing Putin, protesting who are in jail, and they out of means of existence, and those who they, they bear in the effects of sanctions first, before you know Putin and, and all his supporters and stuff like that. So actually, uh, I'm happy that through crypto, I was able to support some of, you know, people in Russia and connect with them. And to give you one little example, like this guy in Russia, he's an NFT artist. And uh, as the war started, he he knows that he cannot even speak out in Russia uh, against the war because that's that's now a criminal offense, stuff like that. He reached out to me. He sent me his works that I minted under his own name, under my name, sorry. And I, I sold them on an action, action and... Uh, uh, and then I matched the funds and I sent them to Ukraine. So basically I helped him to fundraise for Ukraine through this. And he's Russian in Russia. And without crypto in this back channel, he would not be able to do that, right? So I think that people, are, again, woke up to the fact that, you know what? It's time for us to become much more self-sovereign. We've been, if you will, over, for a long time, many citizens and many countries have become, you know, used to, oh, you know, let me, let's in any state take care of you. You know what? Many states will sometimes take care of you, but sometimes it will really mess you up. So I think it's time for us as human beings, as individuals, to to change that direction of kind of uh, the balance of power, if you will. And I think that uh, in the political system, we will see uh, the crypto 
uh, the regulations and uh, crypto really uh, become a very important uh, uh, matter which will become uh, a huge factor in the elections and stuff like that. Oh, I, I completely agree. And the fact the fact that with permissionless, you know, you can you can move, um, you know, money, currency, art, data around the world. I mean, it's it it is a dynamic change that puts the power back in the people, yeah. um, which is really where it should be. Uh, and and again, you know, Goss, um, as we kind of move towards uh, closing here, did you have any other final questions or, or, or thoughts for Dimitri? No, nah, not from my side. This was super interesting, and it was awesome to kind of get some of the the backstory. So, thank you so much for for taking the time. For sure. So Dimitri, yeah. as, as my, as my final kind of question or, or comment is um, what other, what, what's uh, we generally refer to this as alpha drop. So in, in your case, you're kind of privy to anything and everything around the blockchain. Um, any other projects of people you're working with, anyone you want to give a shout out to that you think is, is worthy of uh, the Y whales community taking a look at, whether it's art, uh, whether it's uh, you know, kind of a, a protocol or project, anything. Not particular projects, but I would say that uh, I would definitely say pay a lot of attention to Ethereum level twos, because I believe that uh, the year 22 is when we really will start seeing a lot of uh, really uh, wide adoption of that. And I'm seeing some early indication of that. And uh, most, uh, if none, you know, if... uh, maybe all of them, they have not launched their own token, but there is a huge possibility. And as you guys have seen in their crypto space, again, uh, the whole concept of airdrops for the initial distribution has been uh, widely used uh, quite successfully. So I think that, again, the more you can engage with their uh, blockchain, Web3 ecosystem, crypto, and just like use different tools, play with that. And, you know, yeah, you might lose some money. I've lost some money to scammers. I've lost some money to some failed systems and stuff like that. But I've learned so much. And also I received some airdrops from some of the projects and like, you know, being an early adopter of ENS and stuff like that. So again, uh, it really pays to be an early adopter in many ways. And for me, that would be like looking at uh, uh, L2 uh, platforms uh, on Ethereum, definitely one of their opportunities to definitely look at. And the thing is like, again, haven't seen their humongous return on early investor in crypto. People are still looking like, oh, can we find that another 10,000 increase? Maybe not. However, you know what? Nothing is wrong with getting like a 20x increase over (laughs) a couple of years or a few years. And I think that is quite realistic. So I think that this is a human nature that sometimes trips us up when we kind of run like, oh, we want to gamble away and maybe it was the expectation of this huge return. But you know what? Like, uh, after my own experimentation with DeFi and many different things, whatever, when I kind of look back at them and compare it to the performance of Ethereum over the last couple of years, I'm like, yeah, you know what? Like, very few of them have outperformed Ethereum. So, you know, that kind of rush that we want the next high and success, it's not necessarily in that uh, high-risk thing, but it's something in the, also the whole concept of blue chips that kind of makes a lot of sense too. Yeah, I will. I will let you know. We just interviewed uh, Ben Cohen a, a few days ago, and he's you know a, a, a TA specialist and whatnot. And he he pulled up a chart and he goes, "There's there's no alt 
altcoin in a five-year span that's ever beaten Ethereum. He goes, right. Here, here's the thing. Ever, yeah. You know, Ethereum is is still the the you know the number one alt. Um, everything else may have its its peaks and valleys, but if you're you know it's it's no no one's really winning in the long term over over what right. you guys have done. So, right. um, but I, I really think thank you for your time today. I really uh, appreciate you know your thoughts um, and as well as the the fact that you shared with us kind of some intimate you know details of how you you raised a very successful uh, son and, and and now created this this worldwide movement of which you know everyone will benefit whether they understand understand that or not. And truly, again, um, thank you for your contributions to, to the world. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank, thank you for Jay. your thoughts of, of everything that goes thank out. You, Stefan. Um, and, and again, uh, love to uh, your family and friends that are, that are uh, going through some hard times right now. Thank you. Okay. Wells, Goss, thank you guys. Uh, we'll see you next time. Take Have care. Wales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. YWales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.